The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, also known as the DSM, has garnered a lot of critique, even from psychiatrists and psychologists, so much so that the National Institute of Mental Health and other psychological associations have taken up the task of finding almost entirely new ways to codify and label mental health concerns. In addition, there's been research and headlines in neuroscience news, for example, considering the DSM to be quote-unquote scientifically meaningless. So let's look at some DSM controversies, how the DSM came to be, its legitimacy from a research and statistical standpoint, and also discuss its utility. To be ultra clear here, we are not discussing the validity or legitimacy of mental health concerns at large. Those are always legitimate. However, how we come to label and codify our behavior and human suffering is a much larger question, a much more nuanced question than we give it credit for. Hi, I'm Jasmine Russell, and this is Depth Work, a holistic mental health podcast. This is a space for those who love to dive into the underbelly, to revel in the mystery, question assumptions about what's normal, play in the both and, and honor the wide range of human emotion. As a complex trauma survivor, holistic counselor, and co-founder of a mental health training institute, I've learned that there is immense wisdom in our pain, and that what we call crazy is just what we are not yet willing to understand and explore. I'm so glad that you're here, so let's dive in. How we come to label, describe, and codify mental health concerns has a huge impact on everything from treatment and research to how we define ourselves. Think about how common it is when we get a psychiatric label to either call ourselves or someone else with that label, quote unquote, a bipolar person or a schizophrenic person. This can have huge impacts on how we understand ourselves and our suffering. It's only natural and often can be helpful to look at patterns of human behavior and suffering and give these patterns names. It's what we do as humans. But in the last 40 plus years, we've come to use these labels as ultra discreet and medicalized illnesses. And that's not to say that mental health concerns don't have a biological component. However, using the DSM has kind of covered up the very real unanswered questions that we very much have in and around mental health. The DSM is the leading manual for determining the criteria for what gets considered mental health concerns or mental illness and has global implications because many countries outside of the U.S. where the DSM was developed uses the DSM to codify mental health concerns. So if we're going to use this so far and wide to conduct our most crucial research on mental health and develop clinical programs, we need to know what really is the scientific legitimacy of the DSM, how reliable or valid it is from a statistical standpoint, how did we come to label these patterns of mental and emotional suffering, is it useful, and is there a better way? Having worked for some time in and around the mental health system, I can certainly say that there is a utility to this codification, to giving a name to something that people are experiencing, to giving a name to our suffering. So part of the utility of the DSM is that it can give people this name, this label, and somewhat of an explanation, not to mention a very concrete air of legitimization 
two very confusing experiences. A lot of people stay in suffering for a long time, having very little language to describe their suffering. And once we find out that someone else has maybe experienced a similar element of suffering or a similar pattern of behavior or distress or trauma, to find out that this has a name and to find out that other people might have similar manifestations can be really useful. Just for example, living in a heightened state of anxiety for a long time and suddenly kind of really stopping and saying, wait a minute, I don't know if I, maybe other people don't experience this to such an extreme degree. Maybe, quote unquote, this isn't normal can be quite a freeing statement to say in a way, because this gives us an opportunity to maybe stop and ask how things can change. Ask if there's a way that things can be different or if we can find support and help. With the air of legitimacy that comes with labeling these experiences, we then, especially in the U.S., It's the only way sometimes that we get access to resources. We could be feeling depressed, anxious, have a whole series of different ways that we might be mentally, emotionally suffering. But in our current system and structure, we don't get time off work. We don't get access to psychotherapy. We don't get any other kind of treatment unless we have a diagnosis. And lastly, in terms of the utility of the DSM. It gives a common language for describing mental emotional experiences and behavior, but it can also, for that reason, help build communities across similar experiences. There are plenty of eating disorder groups or people who are diagnosed with bipolar groups that can help us find people who can give us a feeling of validity or legitimacy to our experiences and a sense of community that comes along with it. These communities may or may not be helpful depending on the context, but at the very least, it gives us a shared language and can help us connect with others who may be experiencing something similar. However, the questions that I have had since going pretty deep in critical psychology research, looking at some of the critiques and issues with the DSM and, you know, more broadly, the ways that we come to understand mental health concerns at large, I have some questions because I think that there's a lot of nuance here that we don't get at when we try to reduce our experiences to a very particular codified language. One is, are there better ways to legitimize our suffering? Is the only way to legitimize our mental emotional experience through giving it a language that's equivalent to a disease? Is it possible to build other ways of understanding our experiences and getting the same access that we might desire to resources, to psychotherapy, even medication if we desire, any kind of treatment, without having to completely define ourselves or our experience, reduce our experience to a diagnosis? Secondly, perhaps symptoms aren't the only way to find common ground. Are there other ways of finding community. The DSM focuses so heavily on symptoms and criteria, but the symptoms are just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many ways and reasons why certain emotions or behavior might be manifesting in a certain way. I think that there are other, perhaps even better ways to build community around shared experiences, other ways to put language to our differences. And so with these questions, 
one of the biggest reasons why I think it's very important to critique the diagnostic and statistical manual, to critique the very way that we put language around mental health concerns is because the cost of using this very flawed system is actually quite high. So in terms of critiques, like I said, there's a whole host of psychiatrists, physicians, psychologists, many, many people in the field now who are actually quite against the use of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And some of them want to throw it out the window entirely. And I don't blame them after learning what I've learned. While it was created to have a shared language and taxonomy to be able to communicate between psychiatrists and psychologists in the field, it is not doing its job very well. The first critique that most people within the field have about the DSM is that it is actually statistically unreliable and invalid. One of the most interesting studies on this was done in 2019 and actually wound up in Neuroscience News with the headline of study finds psychiatric diagnosis to be scientifically meaningless. Researchers conclude many psychiatric diagnoses are scientifically worthless as tools for identifying discrete mental health disorders. This study, led by Kate Alsop and researchers of the University of Liverpool, involved a pretty detailed analysis of the mental health diagnoses, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, and trauma-related disorders. And just to sum it up for you here, some of the main findings were that psychiatric diagnoses mask the role of trauma and adverse events. In fact, very many, if not most, mental health concerns have some correlation to trauma and stress. Secondly, diagnoses tell us very little about the individual person and what treatment they might actually need. Thirdly, there's huge overlap in symptoms between diagnoses themselves. So there's a lot of similarities, for example, between what could get labeled as bipolar and what could get labeled as schizophrenia. And psychiatric diagnoses all use different decision-making rules. Talk about that in a little bit. But to quote other psychiatrists and researchers from this article, which I'll link down below, Peter Kinderman says, diagnoses frequently and uncritically get reported as real illnesses are in fact made on the basis of internally inconsistent, confused, and contradictory patterns of largely arbitrary criteria. The diagnostic system wrongly assumes that all distress results from disorder and relies heavily on subjective judgments about what is normal. Again, I'll link this article as well as that research paper down below so that you can dig in. But essentially what this means about the DSM's statistical reliability and validity is that it really doesn't pass our scientific standards. To put this in lay terms, statistical reliability when it comes to the DSM means that a person can go to five different psychiatrists and receive five different diagnoses. The way that people are interpreting the criteria of the DSM is different. And because there's so much overlap in manifestations of distress between disorders, The clusters of criteria and symptoms aren't specific enough. It's just based on verbal assessment. The criteria is quite arbitrary, changing, and again, based on observation, not any kind of biomarker. There's currently no biomarker for mental health concerns. There's no blood test. There's no scan. There's nothing that we can really do or look at biologically 
to say this person has, for example, bipolar and this person has schizophrenia, that doesn't exist. It never has. And so all of this is incredibly subjective. The DSM has been reliable 32 to 42% of the time, which is very low in terms of reliability. And this has not changed in about 30 years. This also kind of differs by country. So, for example, the United States and Russia, compared to other Western countries, are two times as likely to diagnose someone with schizophrenia. So again, what this kind of means in lay terms is that the DSM is not a reliable tool for making sure that we are accurately assessing people or diagnosing people. But then to go even deeper when it comes to statistical validity, what statistical validity means is that in terms of the DSM, we don't actually know not just if the criteria is arbitrary or not, we also don't know that what we've kind of clustered, the symptoms that we've clustered as, for example, bipolar versus the symptoms that we've clustered as, for example, schizophrenia, are even discrete categories. And actually, when we look at the validity, statistical validity of these categories, it really shows that they're not discrete categories. This means that people often get diagnosed with three different mental health diagnoses in one sitting because there is so much overlap. And there isn't really very much indicating that the cluster of things that we've considered to be bipolar is a discrete disease. It doesn't have a natural pathology that is followed. People who are diagnosed with this have wildly different backgrounds, needs, manifestations of distress. And this is actually why psychiatrists who have come to realize this have started to experiment and research completely other ways of codifying mental health concerns. This is why, for example, RDOC, which is the Research Domain Criteria Initiative from the National Institute of Mental Health, was created not necessarily as a replacement for the DSM, but an alternate way of codifying distress and looking at the many factors that can contribute to people's mental and emotional distress. So that's one critique. DSM is statistically unreliable and invalid. Second critique in the field is that the diagnostic criteria the, the criteria that we've listed for each disorder, including the diagnoses themselves, were arbitrarily created. And I'm going to be honest, I've been in and around mad studies, people that are very critical of our current psychiatric system for quite some time. And this even shocked me <laughs> on a huge level. The diagnostic criteria and the disorders themselves are not backed in research, just consensus. And consensus among a very, very small group, a very small group of white Western medical doctors who have taken up the task of what should get labeled in human behavior as normal or abnormal. In a super interesting book called Cracked, Why Psychiatry is Doing More Harm Than Good by James Davies. Davies is a licensed psychologist 
and medical anthropologist. And he interviewed two leaders of these task forces who were in charge by the APA, the American Psychological Association, in charge of creating the DSM-3 and DSM-4. Again, we are now on DSM-5. And both of these people who led these task forces admitted very openly that, again, the process was a small group of white Western clinicians in a room discussing abnormal behavior that they may have seen in clients and giving them names and criteria, but completely arbitrarily, with next to no research on any of the things that they labeled as disorders. And there are hundreds. They were also tasked with taking some disorders out from the old version of the DSM or putting new ones in, changing the names, changing the criteria. And again, all of this done with no real research. What this means is, for example, when you ask the question, why is the minimum threshold of depression two weeks versus six weeks or three weeks? The answer you would get is that this task force just decided that it should be so. There was no research conducted to say that people have worse symptoms or worse outcomes when they meet the threshold of having what could get labeled as clinical depression for five weeks versus two weeks. None of that. It was an arbitrary decision. Magnify that by all of the disorders of which there are hundreds in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And so the the argument that James Davies kind of makes is if a group of highly esteemed politicians agreed that there should only be two parties, does that prove that only two parties actually exist? Or the same could be said with theologians, with God. If a group of highly esteemed theologians agreed that there was a God, does that prove that God exists? So again, a lot of the information that we currently have about mental health concerns is filtered through the lens of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, many of which the decisions around were completely arbitrary. The task of the DSM is essentially to define normal versus abnormal human behavior. And that can get real sketchy at best, right? I mean, can you see how this project, this task of defining what is normal and abnormal is not only entirely subjective when we don't have any biomarkers for mental health concerns, but that anything in and around what's normal is a value judgment. And this is why, and a lot of people kind of cite this as evidence, this is why back in the 1980s, some versions of the DSM included homosexuality as a mental disorder, transness as a mental disorder, and hell, even coffee addiction most recently. So these decisions are not only not scientifically grounded, But these are also decisions that are incredibly philosophical, political. Who gets to decide what is normal and abnormal? Who gets to decide what is a normal amount of grief that someone should feel and for how long before it gets considered clinical depression, for example? And at this point, you might be asking, okay, but but really? Like there's a lot of neuroscience research. There's a lot of research on, you know, 
mental illness and what gets considered this, really there are no biomarkers. So this is critique number three from many psychiatrists and psychologists that yes, there are indeed no biomarkers, no direct pathology that we could map these labels, this taxonomy of the DSM onto real concrete diseases. Not only are there no biomarkers, no tests, the theory that, for example, depression is a result of a chemical imbalance has been debunked many times. There's no neuropsychiatric metric for any mental health disorder listed in the DSM. And again, to be super clear, this does not mean that mental health concerns don't have a biological element. They very often do. Actually, in a more recent study, they found that gut health and immune health are actually more predictive of mental health than neuropsychiatric symptoms. But the DSM itself does not tell us anything about underlying physiology, even though physiology is quite important. But again, as someone who practices holistic health, looking at the immune system, the nervous system, and all of these other biological symptoms are incredibly important for mental health, but we've been conditioned to think that mental health concerns only exist in the brain when there isn't a ton of evidence to support this at all. When we talk about other diseases that are found in the body as a pathology, again, these other diseases, for example, you know, cancer and autoimmune issues, viruses, A lot of these also have pretty complex origins, also related to stress and environment. But essentially what happens in the medical field with other physiological diseases is that diseases are found in the body as a pathology, then given a name. What happens in psychiatry, which is what James Davies says in his book, Cracked, is that psychiatry gives a name to a very fuzzy phenomenon or patterns of behavior and then makes it into a pathology without any evidence, then naming it in the DSM without proper scientific research. So mental health concerns don't follow a specific pathology or trajectory. The way that we can witness a similar process of, for example, a broken bone in its healing process. And one of the most frustrating things is that When we bring this up with psychiatrists who perhaps are still quite clinging to a very old, outdated model, they will say, well, the chemical imbalance theory, for example, the idea that depression or other mental health concerns is the result of an imbalance of certain chemicals in the brain, they will say, well, this is a metaphor. Even though we found no evidence for this, it's a metaphor for describing what we believe to be happening. But that's not what the public has really been led to believe for so long. Many people believe publicly that mental health concerns are mostly, if not solely, rooted in an imbalance in our neurochemistry. Again, going back to the idea that having a name for something can be important. And when many of us get to a moment of, whoa, I'm really suffering or I am having very strange patterns of behavior. Maybe I don't even recognize myself anymore. What's happening to me? Is this behavior normal? For example, if we're having trouble with anxiety or struggling to concentrate and focus, those are all very normal questions that we might have and things that need to be addressed. 
But that's a far cry from calling it a disease. Naming something is helpful. But when we consider it a pathology, we very often then are so limited in understanding the full scope of why these behaviors or why this suffering is there in the first place. Which leads me to critique number four, which is that in the DSM and in this disease model in general, there's no real attempt to find the origins or the roots of mental health concerns. We essentially say, why am I behaving so strangely? Well, it's because I have X mental health disorder. And then it ends there. Not only does it end there, but it's also circular logic. We essentially say, you have bipolar. How do we know? Because you display bipolar symptoms. Why do you display these symptoms? Well, because you have bipolar. It goes in a loop and it doesn't actually help us get to the very complex origins of mental health concerns. Again, according to Kate Alsop's research and what she kind of concluded through this research is that diagnoses tell us very little about what a person actually needs and what needs are or aren't being met. We use these labels perhaps for the sake of getting access to treatment, but even our access to treatment doesn't really look at any of the root causes. This is why a lot of activists and even psychiatrists and psychologists are really crying out and saying, look, these fundamental human needs like housing and healthy food and autonomy and connection, all of these basic needs that aren't getting met under capitalism, these are the baseline mental health treatments that we actually need. Send someone to a therapy office when they don't even have a roof over their head. What the heck is that going to do? And that's just kind of one of the many, many root causes of mental health concerns that should be guiding our treatment. Someone with a history of sexual abuse who's displaying mania is going to need something entirely different than someone with a history of addiction displaying mania. And this kind of leads me to the idea that PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, is the only diagnosis currently in the DSM that even acknowledges trauma. But many, many mental health concerns throughout the research has been shown to be related to trauma and perhaps some of them even predicted by life stressors and histories of abuse. The DSM, in other words, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illness, is a product of the society that created it. Western capitalistic political agendas can't be separated from the DSM. We have this very Western desire to label things. And sometimes, quite often, labeling things erases the nuance and its roots. Labeling whatever that thing is becomes the full lens through which we see and understand it, and we stop asking really crucial questions like, can this behavior or experience be generative? Or is this really abnormal in the context of my life and my surroundings? There's this kind of joke going around Instagram, at least in the critical psychology circles that I'm around, that... I'm going to wear my mental health diagnoses as badges of honor because these are the ways that I am deviant from or different from white heteropatriarchal society that have decided what's normal. And, you know, there's really something in that. What is normal? Often what gets labeled as normal 
are the things that allow us to be quote-unquote functional workers within capitalism. If you're not able to focus or pay attention, you have ADHD, we're going to give you something for that to treat it, usually a medical intervention, a pill that wasn't created to target a particular disease, but this is what we've decided it can do for you to help you cope with perhaps a job that you hate that's not meeting your needs, that's not paying you enough. Normal, in other words, is no badge of honor. But again, that's not to discredit or discount the very real suffering that people experience. It's not to say that treatment isn't needed or care or a very high level of support isn't sometimes needed. But what is the goal? Is the goal to bring people back to normal functioning? Or is the goal to help people self-actualize, transform? Often, the things that get labeled as mental health concerns, the people that experience them are the canaries in the coal mine, as the Icarus Project has always kind of so beautifully written about. With more than 50% of the population in the U.S. displaying the criteria for depression, that not only tells us that our criteria for depression might have some things that are a little too loose and we might have some other agenda at play wanting to label people as depressed and medicalize them for that. But what that also says about our society is that maybe we as a society are not meeting people's very basic needs. And again, this has really come up when it comes to grief and depression. Is it truly abnormal to grieve? for longer than X amount of months that then would make you eligible for the criteria of clinical depression? What is a normal way to deal with the unthinkable? People that have experienced horrific things in their life. We essentially, within this context, individualize and erase the very real multiple factors that are contributing to people's pain, structural oppression, colonial capitalism. We create the very conditions for which we then prescribe medication for. The DSM has always been tied up with medicalizing normal human behavior and emotions. It allows for more widespread use of medication, which again, I will say here and in every episode that I mention medication, taking medication is absolutely okay and not something to be ashamed of. But if we are going to take psychiatric medication, we have to know and understand its limits. Because more often than not, medicalizing mental health concerns is one of the only options or pathways that we are given. And we deserve to be offered so many more pathways for healing. Each time we add a new disorder or change the acceptance criteria for a disorder in the DSM, more medication is prescribed. Ultimately, I think psychiatry's quest at large is a pretty flawed one to eliminate or mitigate abnormal behavior, emotions, so that people can go back to quote-unquote normal functioning, the status quo, based on our society's view of what is and is not acceptable, essentially to pathologize human beings. When we pathologize human behavior and emotion, 
we automatically are choosing to not understand why these behaviors make sense in context and why they shouldn't necessarily be eradicated. Maybe these behaviors, these ways that we suffer is telling us something about what needs to change in ourselves or in society. Which leads me to my last and sixth point about why psychiatrists, psychologists, activists are critiquing the DSM, which is that, and very firmly in my belief as well, pathologizing in general, pathologizing human behavior as a disease or as symptoms to only be eradicated without looking at any of its roots is antithetical to healing fundamentally. Removing ambiguity and creating certainty through these labels and through certain courses of treatment when someone's in a mental health crisis can be soothing and at times can be necessary, but that doesn't necessarily make it healing. We need to be honest about what we do and don't know in mental health. Pathologizing people and telling people you're crazy, you're ill, you're broken can reinforce some of the worst narratives that people have about themselves. It undermines people's body, mind's innate wisdom. Our bodies have an innate wisdom. Animals of all kinds who have nervous system responses, right? Fight, flight, or freeze when we are met with threat or suffering. Our bodies know how to move through that, but we get in the way and we don't understand why the body is responding how it is to present circumstances. When I say pathologizing is antithetical to healing, doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to feel better or that we should just sit in our pain and our suffering, not at all. But what that means is that we can legitimize our suffering without considering it a disease, especially when there isn't a lot of evidence for that. We can mitigate risk without taking people's autonomy away or changing the very way that people think about themselves. Because when someone gets a label, it really changes your narrative about who you are and what's possible for you. We can name patterns of suffering or behavior and offer treatment to people without taking away their right to define their story for themselves. Again, I think pathologizing grief is kind of a good example of this that a lot of us, I think, can get behind, right? When we pathologize grief, And we essentially say, according to the DSM, you can only experience grief for X amount of weeks or months before we're going to label it as clinical depression, as something that's abnormal that you shouldn't be going through and that you should medicalize away. There's a lot of outrage to that from all sides, from psychiatrists, psychologists, from activists, people who have experienced deep grief. And if you have, you'll know grief is a process. Grief requires a lot of intentionality. When we talk about the five stages of grief, or I don't even remember exactly how many stages there are in that within that theory, but it's a whole loop. It's not like you go through these stages the way that you go through school or education. It's messy. It's not linear. And I think a lot of people do understand that grief at large is a necessary process. When we lose something or someone that is so dear to us, when we experience that deep well of grief, that deep hole or void where someone or something used to be part of the necessary process of reclaiming our lives through that grief is going through that messiness, is anger, 
sadness, all of the things that come with it. But then when we think outside of grief, as an example, often people say, yeah, okay, but but what about schizophrenia? What about psychosis? What about these, you know, quote unquote, serious mental illnesses? This is just my opinion as someone who's experienced what gets labeled as psychosis and some of these other quote unquote serious mental illnesses, that these are also human experiences that have been around for as long as we can look back. And every human society has had different ways of dealing with these human experiences, some pathologizing them, some really dealing with them in very harmful, violent ways, and some of them far more humane and integrating these experiences into society in a way that's truly helpful and healing to the people experiencing them. So I'm hesitant to just redraw the lines or move the line between normal and abnormal to a different place. Because I think whatever we consider madness, whatever this messy thing called madness is, however we want to talk about it or define it, human suffering, human differences, big extreme emotions and behavior, all of it is part of the human experience that in my opinion, the the better goal instead of separating normal from abnormal, instead of attempting to eliminate or mitigate abnormal behavior or what we consider to be abnormal behavior. That is psychiatry's flawed quest. I think the better goal is how do we deal with these human experiences as a society? How do we want to support people through this? It is a process, one that It's important to keep people safe and held and supported through them, but can also be quite detrimental to try to stop them as processes. And I talk about particularly psychosis or schizophrenia in episode two of this podcast. And again, when it comes to these human experiences, I think this requires so much more input than just psychiatry and psychology. This is a much bigger quest for understanding that requires so many other fields of influence, philosophy, existentialism. I mean, what we're really talking about here is what it means to be human, right? History, sociology, anthropology, and even other hard sciences from other medical fields. This is a quest that psychiatry can't and very well shouldn't do alone especially because I believe that when it comes to our lives, our health, our emotions, who we are as humans, we are the best experts in our own lived experiences. I am so grateful to you for being here. If you love this discussion and you're interested in mental health activism and transformative mental health, I highly recommend checking out the Institute for the Development of Human Arts. That's idha-nyc.org. At this point, we have members and faculty from all around the world. We have online courses, events, and opportunities for movement building. So if you're not yet a member, you can sign up for that in the link below. As always, I love hearing what you think, so please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, and I will see you next time.